For May 28th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 517. Nobody solo actually Hans. It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out and talking with one another about the things that we love, including this week. I nearly introduced it by saying, into the garbage chute, flyboy. But that uh, garbage chute would be a, a really ungenerous way to uh, describe Solo, colon, a Star Wars story. The latest anthology film in uh latest anthology film in the Star Wars you know anthology series that is uh you know uh, performing respectably i suppose at the box office but such are the the high stakes of the global entertainment industry these days that respectable performance is seen as failure and so solo is a bomb it's a <laughs> bomb hey uh so uh, i'm Matt rather i'm here with my uh, outlaw crew Pete Fenzel hello Pete Matt <laughs> and Mark Lee. Trust no one, Matt. Everyone's going to betray you, except me. I'm here for. I'm here 100 for you, Matt. We'll never let you down. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, we're 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 like Fanity Newton and 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 uh, Woody Harrelson. We're not like. Uh, did you say Fanity like Vanity? No, Fanity Newton, right? Um, but uh sandy th- like candy not vanity like vanity um but uh but uh hopefully we won't get killed off in the first in the the first 10 minutes of the of the podcast um yeah so we watched uh we watched solo it it came out i mean this 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 is a film it's it's so interesting i mean there's so many things that can be said about it and i have trouble organizing my thoughts uh, around this film partly because i think it was doing a lot doing a whole bunch of of things at once in fact uh i would say that perhaps there were mm, maybe more than three but maybe less than five (laughs) (laughs) movies inside this movie pete would you would you agree I think so. Well, I think well, that that could probably... <laughs> All right. So I think that there are four movies that Solo is being. And uh, part of the I, I, Solo is a movie where I enjoyed individual moments of it a great deal. But the passage from one part of the movie to the other sometimes left me a little bit wanting. And uh, but I'm excited to talk about the parts. <laughs> and uh, so I think that I would describe the four movies that are happening in Solo as one. Solo is a movie about. Uh, the uh, it's kind of a postmodern movie about identity and rules, wherein a human being it, it puts on a, and performs a variety of identities uh, in order to look for some sort of structure in their life because the rules that have been set for them in their life don't allow for them to have an identity. So it's about sort of like rule breaking and rule making. It's like a Bildungsroman, but it's very specifically about wearing costumes. Uh, and that that would be what I think the first thing I would say is is the first solo movie. Okay, so uh, th- this is yeah. the Who Are Your People movie, 
right? Like, uh, yeah, the, yeah, qu- yeah, the question, exactly. the question that he gets when he enlists in the Imperial Navy. I nearly said the Royal Navy, but it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's Imperial. Horatio Hornblower colon a Star Wars story is still on the horizon. Uh, yeah, there's a wonderful scene. Did you guys catch? I mean, I don't think I imagined this because my fiance saw it too. Did you guys catch that wonderful moment when Han Solo is fleeing through the TSA line after the dogs have been sicked on him after he's managed to get through the metal detectors? And he gets a cloak around him and he gets a hat on him. And for a moment, he's walking around and he has Darth Vader's silhouette. Did you guys no, catch that? No, I did not yeah. catch that at all. I felt like in the whole beginning of the movie, there's in the, there's this there's this series of Star Wars characters that Solo dresses up as. He starts out like Luke Skywalker in the speeder with the white jacket. And then he gets a cloak and a hat that has Darth Vader's profile in it. And he kind of walks a little bit hunched over like Darth Vader before going to hide in a corner. And clearly that doesn't work. Then he gets like he gets well, he gets he becomes a trooper, right? He becomes like the stormtrooper and that doesn't work for him. And then he gets pressed into the mud and it looks like he's in the carbonite. Right. And that that doesn't work for him either. And then he gets a big coat and he dresses like Chewbacca. Right. And then that gets taken away from him, too. And there's this sort of progression where he fi- he arrives at this sort of dark shirt solo. And what I really expected was for that story to end with a vest. <laughs> right. For Han Solo to end with like a white shirt and a dark vest, or at least with the white shirt, which he has at the beginning of New Hope. But we're not there yet. There's at least a couple of rounds of laundry and room for one more movie between now and then, <laughs> I suppose. But it definitely seemed like, oh, this is a movie that's really concerned. Oh, the thermal detonator scene. Right. Uh, with the rock and the making the noises with your mouth. <laughs> right. Where he's trying to scare. Oh, by the way, spoilers for Solo. By the way, we're going to spoil the heck out of this movie. So fair warning to everybody. But there's the scene where he does the scene with Jabba from Return of the Jedi with his boss on Corellia while holding a rock and making a noise with his mouth like Jonesy from Police Academy attempting to threaten her with a nuclear weapon. It does not work. Or thermal detonator. But yeah, that's one of them, right? Who are your people? Right. I mean, you picked up on this a little bit, Matt. You said, who are your people movie? Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, it is an interesting, it's an interesting thing that the Star Wars films tend to be about the sort of perils of, of bad parenting. Right. And that like, there is a sort of provision of care, not in the sense of like actual, not, not in the literal sense of the way you actually provide care to like an infant child, but there's a sort of moral provision of care that happens in Star Wars films that are, um, you know, uh, that boils down to a choice between the good and the bad father or the kind of the finding of a, like a, uh, Freud called it the family romance where you can imagine, um, a, an awesome family, uh, instead of your, you know, normal bourgeois Viennese family, which is of course what everybody had if you believe in, uh, Freud's theories because the normal upbringing is the, uh, upbringing of a bourgeois Viennese in the late 19th century. So, right. Um, so like uh this this issue of like of upbringing and of uh training lineage you know um parents and uh mentors in loco parentis um is is an interesting one and so the idea the idea of identity being formed almost by sort of putting on and taking off clothes the idea that like that there's almost an act of will there's kind of an act there's a sort of performance right that uh uh, that constitutes identity is an interesting one and is, I think, a novel thing in the, the Star Wars universe. I wish the actor had been a little less one note, but we'll probably get to that later. Yeah. 
I mean, a great example of this phenomenon is the robot who sheds the body of the robot and becomes the body of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> and the mm. idea that the Millennium Falcon's identity emerged from this, you know, feminist, uh, aggressive, militant robot, you know, that wanted a robot uprising and that believes in freedom and that the Millennium Falcon, you know, uh, the yoke is easy and the burden light. The Millennium Falcon does not serve as a slave, but as a willing participant in the adventures. And, I was going to say I was taking a different direction. It explains why it, uh, it sometimes refuses to obey its master yeah, exactly. <laughs> and doesn't want to go to hyperdrive. It's a sassy ship. It's a sassy, expressive yeah. ship that does does what it wants. And now we found out why, because it has the brain of a sassy robot, but it has no it has no voice. So it must go to light speed. <laughs> right. It, uh, but, yeah, that's cool. like the dressing in Lando, of course, lots of costumes, people, all the double crossing. So that's one of the movies is this movie about kind of shifting bodies, shifting performance, shifting clothes. Uh, maybe the performances aren't really up to snuff. Maybe the movie doesn't spend enough time on it. Not, to make that not, sort of not all of them. Not all of them. Only the main character. <laughs> I thought Amelia Clark's character. No, yeah, she was, was she was pretty good. Oh, really? You didn't think she was good? You didn't think she I, did a good job with the material that she had to work with? Well, that's that's fair, right? Like the material she had to work with, that's fair because she's a character where they said all the time she's done horrible things. She's done horrible things, and you never find out what the horrible things are. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only horrible thing she does is stab her ass ass boss. Right? <laughs> uh, that's like the one horrible thing she does. You know what? I'll give you, Pete. I'll give you one asshole. <laughs> he he does. Paul Bettany deserves it in this movie. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So he gets stabbed, and that's the horrible thing. And so she doesn't really have an opportunity to live in the transformative space. They basically, like, take her character arc and conduct it off screen and then have her on screen literally pretending she never had a character arc. <laughs> and, like, that's her role is to pretend <laughs> she hasn't changed. And she does that great. She has no character arc. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's an elaborate ruse wherein really there is a character arc that we haven't seen that she's <laughs> but it's, I mean, the mother of dragons. I mean, we could we could probably argue about this for days, but, like, I feel like in her... In her performance, like when she looks at him in those silences and kind of in the moments when you're you're ambivalent about her, right? Like there is a sort of ambivalence in her performance. There's a sense of there's a sense of depth and there's a sense of some sort of knowledge, right? That makes her makes her more complex than the the kind of cardboard cutout. Because yeah, it's true. The character as written is kind of a plot function and not really not really a person. Um, yeah. And she takes it and and seems to imbue it through performance with some depth and some some nuance, <laughs> whereas you know uh, the Han Solo Han Solo is all depth and nuance <laughs> and is portrayed with all the sophistication of a of a cardboard cutout. Like the the I get I get why the smirk right like I sort of I sort of understand, but you I don't know. There's there is an earned and unearned smirk, you know, and that's uh, and you you see Harrison Ford in A New Hope, and it's like he he has earned that smirk, you know, uh, and yeah, uh, mm. there's something. Right. So would, anyway. would that would that it were so simple to earn that smirk? <laughs> would that it were would that it were so simple? So big Roman numeral two second movie uh, is the br- bromance before romance movie. Which is about how Han Solo has an attachment to Kira that is based, that is romantic, that is based in his who he was in the past, and 
she has changed and he has changed, but he doesn't want to think that he has changed. And he meets Chewbacca along the way with whom he has the potential to have this big future relationship. And it's a movie about choosing your friends. Now, you said the my people, your people line. Yeah, that, that is part of that's about self-identification. But part of it is also this notion of these people getting together and kind of consummating their relationships. Who do you belong to in this? Not in the sense of of who do you belong to that helps define who you are, but more like who do you belong to in your social relationships wherein you work on things together and you build things together. You kind of uh, conduct uh, some sort of fusion or dynamic connection in the world that has an effect on the world. Uh, that the idea that nobody alone accomplishes anything is sort of the one of the I think one of the baseline assumptions of this movie that nobody alone actually nobody solo actually Hans. Right. Everybody has to. You have to have two. It takes two to tango. Right. It's, it takes two to make a thing. All right. It, it, it takes two to make it out of sight. It takes two to make a thing go right. I believe it takes two to make it out of sight. Yeah. Yeah. It takes two. OK. Uh, but yeah, the idea that Han Solo wants to be with his old relationship, but then he meets Chewbacca and then he wants to be with his new relationship. And then there is the Lando, who is the kind of like fake out other B plot relationship where it turns out that they hate each other and that hating each other is the way it's supposed to be. And and it's in this sense, I would say that like you mentioned how if Star Wars is about good parents and bad parents, Han Solo is the Dickensian orphan of Star Wars, even more than Luke Skywalker is sometimes uh, in, in this in the sense of like he's this blank slate uh, who who is like he's a blank slate in his heart, but he uh, kind of lives in a world that defines what he is. And uh, when when Luke meets him, he's like the artful Dodger. But by the end of it, he's like Pip from Great Expectations. <laughs> he has to like rise up into gentlemanly culture and kind of get with Princess Leia and stuff. Um, but in this sense, it's like, OK, well, it's a romance in the sense that who he marries is is what's going to define the future. And he ends up marrying Chewbacca, which is the right huh. answer. Right. Um, and I and I wish that this movie had been more of the movie. I wish we had because I felt like the dynamic. I didn't dislike his performance as much as you did, Matt. But in particular, I liked the Han Chewbacca dynamic in this movie. And I felt like that was kind of bounced along the surface a little bit. And we could have gone even deeper into the Han Chewbacca dynamic and like why they're together. Why are they friends? Uh, yeah, we get on it. We get on it really fast. We get on so many things. This movie so fast that they don't have time to breathe. Uh, like Han Solo getting his trademark look like Han Solo finding his trademark best friend. Uh, these are big deals. And you could have uh, made that the sort of point of the movie rather than just some one thing that happens. Yeah. So uh, like the tension between Chewie and Han, right. And how, uh, 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 Han still pines for Kira, right? And then and Chewie's feeling jealous or or you know not giving enough attention. Uh, that is just played for laughs. Yeah, um, yeah. And like kind of just skipped over maybe like once or twice or so, and not really delved into. But that's isn't that what we really want? Like that that's a, such a fascinating relationship, Han and Chewie. Um, you know, we get that great intro scene with the with the mud. Um, and it's a great uh, point that you bring up that it is uh, somewhat reminiscent of the, Car- or the Carbonite and that uh, conflict. They are born from such conflict and disagreement and to the point of nearly, you know, killing each other or at least Chewie killing Han that uh, that you just want to see more of that. Yeah. The sparks fly. Yeah. In this that. case, you have in this movie, you would have Paul Bettany killing the person who came before Kira in the first scene rather than the regional governor. And then Kira would be his new lieutenant. And then there's this question of whether Han is going to be with Kira. No, he's going to be with Chewbacca. And then there's the question of is Kira going to be with 
the Crimson guy, is he going to be with, is she going to be with Han? No, she's going to be with Darth Maul, which is the big turn at the end in terms of this grand romance that actually she's been boffing Redface on the side. Uh, and, and he is, in fact, the Crimson <laughs> Dawn with the spider legs. Uh, and, and then Londo is trying to boff everybody. He wants to both be friends with and not be friends with everybody. He doesn't like commitment. He just wants he just wants uh, space friends with benefits, uh, co-pilots with benefits, I guess, is the way to put it. Uh, but yeah, but what do you guys think about Darth Maul? I mean, I'm, I'm introducing him here as a uh, secondary father figure or a secondary romantic figure as the sort of, you know, the sort of daddy in scare quotes for Kira uh, that, that has this that it seems to have some sort of consummated aspect to yeah but uh, they, to they, they do it in the way that that millennials do it in in memes right like it, when you say daddy you mean like uh you don't mean a actual father figure in a darth uh darth vader sense you mean uh you mean you know sexy daddy right the, yeah yeah maul, maul is daddy right oh. which is not the same as maul's father right <laughs> which i think is zabrak He's a Zabrak. That's his species. So my, 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 you're saying that he's daddy in the sense of my heart belongs to daddy. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and, uh, you, there's, there's a great deal of, of hand waving, right? Like in, in these sort of romances and, and substitute romances, kind of sublimated romances, whether they're, uh, whether they're homosocial or whether they're, uh, kind of mentorship romances or whether they're like partnership, um, you know, uh, team romances, right? There's a lot of hand wavy, hand wavy about, uh, about it. Like, and, and I think it's actually, I think it's intentional, right? Cause how does, uh, how does it work between, uh, L3 and, um, and Lando, right? It works. Believe me, yeah. we're you know, believe me, <laughs> right? It it just works, and it's it's uh, it's as close that as Star Wars gets, you know, for so much for so much lineage, for so much like uh, begetting and descendancy, right? Like there's very there's very little uh, on the the procreation side of it, and it's it's more it's more the you know um, adolescent aspects of the the early adulthood aspects of the of the hero's journey, right? There's no like there's no generativity uh in in star wars it's already sort of been generated and so the idea that like this the the question of these pairings the like and the the sort of not not morbid what's the word i want the kind of voyeuristic fascination of like well what like yeah now is she going to be all cuz she's heading off to darth maul at, at the end of the movie like is she going to you know use her wiles on him the way she did on on Paul Bettany or was forced to I should say because it's you know it's clear she sort of has the status of a uh, of a slave or a prisoner of war or a, you know exploit a trafficked person sort of um, you know branded as property uh, the but but like but that's hand waved away How, what 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 are you gonna what are you gonna do with Darth Maul no don't worry it works it were the crime the crime the <laughs> he crime was just cut works. in half he was cut in half and his lower half fell down a reactor shaft so did his upper half <laughs> so, 
<laughs> or something along those lines. It was a shaft, okay? I don't know what kind of shaft it was. And that should be the that should be the question about. You know, this was almost the only Star Wars movie without a lightsaber for like uh, almost the last five seconds. Couldn't <laughs> 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 quite like pull it shaft. off. <laughs> exactly. No. Just just very quickly on Darth Maul. I feel like we should probably move on to other topics. Oh, yeah. But um, uh, a completely unnecessary fan service is how I would describe it. Right? <laughs> for like the like the ten percent of the audience who has followed all the tar- Star Wars television shows and like the Darth Maul. Uh, comic book and things like that who know all about Darth Maul's uh, resurrection and uh, all this time he spent in the criminal underworld and the rest of us to kind of scratch our heads and have to Google and explain our article later and then we read that and like okay that added nothing at all <laughs> to my enjoyment <laughs> or understanding of this movie. Um, end of little rant. I didn't. See, like, I, like I'm on the other. Cameo. I'm on the other side of it because I feel like one of the drawbacks of the Star Wars cinematic universe, per se, is that by by pr- prioritizing the original series over the prequels, the original series are pretty s- simple movies, and there really isn't all that much that happens. So there's a limit to the amount of stuff that you can pull and repeat. Whereas the prequels are baroque nonsense with all sorts of stuff. <laughs> that you can pull from. There's all sorts of stuff and and so a lot of people know the prequels really well and so like i'm 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 psyched i would 100 percent rather watch darth maul becomes a space gangster than like yet another movie about yet another you know moppet from yet another desert planet who becomes yet another priest fencer right like you know <laughs> <laughs> unnecessary but anyway big roman numeral three wait, solo is wait, a sorry, solo sorry. Is i just a, i missed the opportunity for a joke uh, a couple and i just okay. i just uh i just want to stick it in here just so that uh you know i won't edit it in just just that's know what, that that's what darth maul said yeah exactly just know i was thinking uh i was thinking this when you said shut your mouth but i'm talking about shaft baby there it is there it is <laughs> thank you <laughs> yes uh so big roman numeral three solo is a heist movie Solo is a heist movie like Ant-Man is a heist movie. <laughs> in, in, like in Rogue that, One is a, is a heist movie as well. That's true. Yeah, Rogue One. Rogue One's a much better heist movie. than Solo's not a very good heist movie. I was about to say, is it? Is it? Is what? Is, is it what? is it actually a heist movie or, or is it should it be a heist movie? Well, well, okay. It's it's in terms of what checks does it write that it tells you it's going to catch. Okay, yeah, fair, fair yeah. enough. In that sense, yeah, I'm with you 100. Yeah. percent It it sets up. At the, it sets up that Solo meets the plucky band of robbers, that there's going to be a train robbery. So so this is – the movie is being introduced, and you need to – you're trying to understand, at least from my perspective, okay, what kind of movie am I watching? I'm looking for cues consciously and subconsciously to tell me what the rules are of this movie. First, we get the whole kind of like shadow run Tokyo drift, you know, space, space street racing bad boy, and he's driving sideways. And it's like, okay, this is going to be a movie that relies on Han Solo's kind of daring do of squeezing through cracks, which he tends to do a lot of. (laughs) And great, I'm on board. That's a defining visual characteristic of Han Solo. He jumps through cracks, he flies through cracks, he turns sideways a lot awesome right uh that's great um and maybe he has a cd changer that's turned 90 degrees that needs to be dealt with but um but and, and then it, and it's like oh you know he's just he's like uh we're gonna have to deal with the underworld this is like a a movie like uh, it feels sort of like mad max beyond thunderdome and that there's this like hexscape city right that uh has all the people are all slaves of this monstrous thing and we don't really know what the situation is okay that's what the movie is no 
<laughs> we go through the TSA. Now we're introduced to the plucky band of robbers led by Woody Harrelson, who is one of the dominant presences in this movie, you know, for better or for worse. Certainly Woody Harrelson never really does a bad performance. Uh, it, it was I thought it was a pretty good performance. Then, then the question is, like, well, what is his story doing? You meet this really actually, I think, compelling group of people. You meet uh, Tandy Newton and Woody Harrelson. They're married. Right. They're they're at least at the very least in a very committed long term sexual and personal relationship where they know each other very well and speak to each other with like a deep earned familiarity. <laughs> right. Like that. That was the sense. I'm like, this is these people. These people have each other's numbers. Right. Uh, like how they're arguing about whether the other group is going to come and steal their score. Um, I mean, it feels kind of like uh, um, Tudyk and Torres in Firefly. Sure. Right. It's like they've been together forever. Right. By the time we get to the main events of the story, whatever happened before, they've been together forever. They know each other really well. This is a married couple that's in this setting. Awesome. And they have awesome uh, six arm guy who, you know, mourn you till I join you. You died way too soon, buddy. You know, like you were my favorite character. I loved you. <laughs> you were the best. <laughs> you had to get fridge so Solo could fly. Um, but uh, actually, he didn't even get fridge. It wasn't even for character development. It was just for logistical purposes. Well, well that, that's my, I mean. That, uh, <laughs> it was just like, oh, no, we have a character in this chair, and we're too embarrassed to ask him to get up and move. So we're going to murder him. <laughs> oh dear. And not only that, so but he's going to be murdered by the good guys, and we're never going to address it. <laughs> that's like that's like Jason Statham killing Han level of Han crime right there, right? Which is, <laughs> which is that it turned. But that's that. Well, we'll talk about that in a bit. But sorry, you were saying. You were saying. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's. Can you identify the point at which? Han self-actualizes in this movie, right? Like, at, at what point, you know, if this is sort of an origin story, like, uh, what what is the origin, right? It's not, because it's not the family, it's not the sort of family of, of plucky, plucky rebels. But are you, have you done movie four yet? I feel like we need, I know, we need Roman That's numeral four. So, so here it is. Yeah. So Roman numeral four is the story about whether Han Solo is a robber or a good guy. Right. And that's like the big question is like, are you are you are you an outlaw because the law is bad or are you an outlaw because you're selfish? And this story of like, are you a hero uh, is kind of the question. That's how I would say. Right. Is maybe you had a different idea of, of it. But if if movie if movie one is what does Han Solo look like as as a way of getting to the character and movie two is who does Han Solo hang out with as a way of getting into the character and movie three is like what does Han Solo like do with his time what are his skills that that uh, that define him as a character and then the fourth one is more like what are his values what does Han Solo think is good and and that defines him as a character and these movies don't really fit together very well right because what like if we're defining him by how he dresses it doesn't really work so well for him having like deep convictions um to answer your question matt i would say he does not self-actualize in this movie right. this is not a solo origin story this is a solo pre-origin story uh-huh. i would say right i mean because because they're what are the two big lines right in this movie it's uh it's i um i hate you i know right <laughs> where, like orlando says i hate you and he says i know which is the inverse of what he does with princess leia right and then the other one is I have a, I have a, I have a really good feeling about this. <laughs> right. right. I have a yes. great feeling about this. A great, really good feeling about this. However, he, however he puts it, and it's the opposite of what we expect him to be. So we are setting up 
the person who becomes Han Solo. We're not even setting up Han Solo in this movie. Right. We're sort of suggest. yeah, he's uh, Han Solo is in relief, right? Like he's suggested by his absence. uh, Yeah. There is essentially a throwaway line about we're going to go to Tatooine and meet up with this gangster and go on to this big score, which is going to go horribly wrong, which is, uh, you know, really going to more more, uh, more significantly um, define Han Solo's character arc for episodes four through six. Right. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't see that. Um, what we do see here, there's a fragment of an interesting idea, and it does connect with the uh, story one, I believe, the one with the Han Solo dressing differently, uh, yeah, how it yeah. looks differently, which is uh, his time spent as a, as a grunt in the Imperial Army. Not right. even a stormtrooper, right? Like not even good enough to wear the fancy white armor. Just like thrown out in the battlefield in like an apocalypse now, like hellscape, and <laughs> be it in space Vietnam or space Afghanistan, and he's yeah. like, you know, like uh, disillusioned by the war, and is, you know, when his commanding officer says, like, you know, we're here to, you know, to to bring glory to the empire, you know, we're to destroy the enemy, and it's like, you know, what do you mean, we're the enemy. we're the enemy, yeah, um, you know, this like, which the, is a real, which is a real, yeah, that's a real Good Morning Vietnam uh, reference there, right? Like when at the end he the the kid the Vietnamese kid tells Robin Williams you're the enemy you're the enemy you know he's mm. he's that kid yeah so that that you know it plays out weekly in different other other areas of the movie but ultimately we are left with this sense of incompleteness uh of his character arc absolutely I agree with you Pete yeah yeah it's 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 really interesting you know what it reminds me of thinking about it is the phantom menace because when the phantom menace was marketed to us it was sold and advertised with that little boy and his shadow was Darth Vader. Yeah. And yeah. it was this idea of like, this is the origin of Darth Vader. And you know what? He starts as a Moppet, another Moppet becomes <laughs> another space fencer. Right? Like it's like, he's this cute little kid, but there's this vast potential for not only evil, but like threatening evil of, on a legendary scale and just immense, like sort of bad attitude and awesomeness. Uh, and what the Phantom Menace does is locate him. Find out he is good at a couple of trades and then relocate him to a different planet. And that's like all that happens. Right. Like that's that's like I mean, yeah, they find out he's like got force power potential, but none of the sense of threat, none of the sense of of sort of the turning. Right. None of the sense of, of sort of childhood imperiled by the future. The idea that the sort of few the sins of the future are going to come back and call into question the virtues of childhood. Uh, none of that happens in the Phantom Menace. Uh, they save that for later after they have Dooku because you know they, they, that's a series or serious movies once Dooku's around. <laughs> but um, because Dooku is Dooku, Dooku is daddy is, is what I'm saying. No, the, the point is that that the haunt that Solo oh, Dooku is, is Bay. <laughs> du- Dooku is Bay, but uh, and that's a good meeting scene. And I always talk about the Dooku meetings. Hello, Mister CGI Trade Minister. Why no, Mister CGI Banker Moth Person? Why no? Oh, let's all drink. Let's all have a good time. Uh, someone's trying to dial in. No, it's um, <laughs> it's no, it's that it's that solo in this movie does not. It's it's it tells you the movie didn't even make the promise that it would be about this guy being an outlaw. It's all it was all marketed in my uh, estimation as sort of like a Flash Gordon, John Carter of Mars kind of thing where it's like adventure, right? like like nothing happens, but it's adventure where uh, was that what it was called? John Carter or no, was am I thinking of what was the you know, yeah, yeah. John Carter, Prince of Mars. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And that movie was the last big Disney movie to not do so hot. 
Uh, but well, actually, I mean, Thor two didn't do so great. But I mean, like uh, John Carter was the really last big, big budget Disney bomb, as far as I can recall. And that was back in 2012. Uh, and it was also based on a property that, uh, you know, you would as- somebody assumed that there was a reason that people would care about this without being given an additional reason. Uh, like, so, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to send you guys a link to uh, the poster to John Carter, at least one of the posters to John Carter right here. And uh, and maybe you can post in the show notes uh, just to describe it for the people who are listening. It's like a red field with a big red circle with a brightness around it that appears to be an eclipse. And then there's a dude with no shirt wearing like a leather it's kind of like Bill and Ted sweatshirt tied around his waist. It's not that just a to... dude. That's Tim Riggins. You know, that's, uh... <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> like China doesn't know that. No one's going to watch this thing. But it's like there's no dynamism. There's no action. There's like the sense that, oh, look, it's a person who might potentially go on an adventure with those guys with sticks. Right. Like there's no there's no dy- there's no like uh, conflict that is in. I guess there is conflict, but there's no motion. You know, it's very static and it's just like, isn't this thing awesome enough in itself that you're going to want to watch it? Forgetting the fact that what I'm going to be watching is something happening. And I think that that is a big part of what's going on with Solo is that they're selling you the character, but not the events. Like if they had if they had showed you like there's a freaking mountain that blows up in this movie, I think more people would have seen it. There's a giant space octopus in this movie. Right. Like maybe people would have been more excited about it rather than just like, hey, it's a Star Wars movie with a guy that you should care about. Right. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's that's what I'm saying. And, and not only that, because because that's the thing. And that is that it's not really a conflict, because the reality is that Han Solo exists because of the dynamism and the motion and the conflict and the things that happen when he's around it, it, that he represents conflict. He stirs the pot. So Han Solo doesn't leave things the way that they are. Right. It's Han Solo. He makes things happen, unpredictable things, you know, things that are morally questionable uh, and but things that are exciting, things that are good, sometimes things that are bad. Han Solo is, is a catalyst. Uh, he's an action guy in the same way that Indiana Jones is an action guy because he's Harrison Ford, I guess, in a similar way. Um, and there's the question then is like, OK, if this is a movie about Han Solo, if the idea is that by the end of this movie, Han Solo is going to have reached the state of ennui that we meet him in in A New Hope, where he feels like the universe is a lost cause. Basically, if he meets, if he arrives at Rocket Raccoon state, <laughs> Rocket Raccoon, <laughs> Rocket Raccoon is a better Han Solo right now than Han Solo is. I'm going to say that right now. And, and although and Groot is a better Chewbacca. That's not true. Chewbacca and Groot are kind of side by side on this. I think they're both doing OK. But uh, Groot and Chewbacca are keeping pace better than Solo is with Rocket Raccoon in terms of being like a ro- and, and I would say Rocket Raccoon specifically even more than Star Lord in, in terms of being like the bad the guy who brings the bad attitude to the table. Uh, you know, I mean, I, mean, I don't this know. Is sort of, this is definitely sort of a post Guardians of the Galaxy movie where it's like swashbuckling space adventure, right? And the the, the yeah. whole idea of the the sort of the Star Wars and the Indiana Jones. This is like the George Lucas idea, right? Is like is to to revive the the um, film serials of the early the early and mid twentieth century, right? The the sort of lurid adventure tales and and things like this. The the you know twelve year old the sort of prepubescent boy stuff um now that the the whole idea with star wars is that it got tarted up with this with all of this hero's journey nonsense and it got tarted up with all of this uh kind of portentous uh ominous portent right but that's but that's not the 
DNA of it. The DNA of it is is a kind of is like as you say, Buck Rogers is this kind of swashbuckling um, sort of thing. And so the idea, like you know, he's standing there. He's he's never like posed, you know, and he's not. Um, you know, he, he's got this sort of, uh, dynamism in the poster, right? Like when, when Alden Ehrenreich is, is, um, standing there, you know, he's sort of crouched, like half, half crouched, maybe 20% crouched and he's holding out a blaster, right? And he's like, he's like looking, you know, it's like, he's about to, he's about to pounce, you know, um, and and that that like uh, that's supposed to be oh this is going to be Guardians of the Galaxy this is going to be fun um, but there's no uh, you know there's no they're there plot wise because there's nothing particularly at stake in 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 this because there's no actual sex so so uh, the woman is not a prize there's no actual money so the money is not a prize right there's no like development of the friendship so the friendship is not. Uh, is not a prize. Those are all kind of both both the you know broish animosity with Lando and the the broish bromance with Chewbacca. Those are sort of kept at, at arm's length. And so you know, I don't know what's left the the sort of sensation or the attitude or the the um, the smirk. I mean, the smirk only makes sense if if the smirk is set against the the backdrop of a whole bunch of serious things that a person should not be uh, smirking at. The smirk only makes sense if we all agree that no decent person would ever smirk in a situation like that. And like, this is, you know, this is a, a sort of post Whedon, um, this is a post Whedon uh uh, sci-fi and fantasy universe where the, you know, quippy, um, erudite one-liner is the the default mode of staring danger in the face um mm. you know however however uh pants poopingly dire the circumstance um and that that like uh it's i you know i don't know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't play just because right and i think i think this is what you're you're getting at a little bit right like there are a lot of things in the film that are supposed to to work just because and them, it's not a good enough reason. I, so some of them do, though. I, I, if we're being very harsh, we're coming off yeah. as very harsh on this movie. The reality is, I think that at least Pete and I enjoyed it quite a lot. And Matt, it seems yeah. like you enjoyed it at least a little bit, right? I, yeah, sure. I, I liked moments of it. I mean, it's true. Woody, Woody Harrelson is like never, never a uh, bad time to watch. Donald Glover is never a bad time. Uh, never a bad time to watch, but don't you feel uh, even Donald Glover? Don't you feel like he was he was sort of pushing the sort of smooth operator act into a into a uh, such an extreme place that it was almost like it was so transparent, uh, so transparently a cover for something, or so just transparently, you know. Um, BS that like it's like why why no one would buy this right like no one no one I I don't know that 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 said I love him as an actor and I love watching him so it's uh uh it's good it's just that that it didn't it didn't capitalize on a lot of his uh oh what he has he has that that Donald Glover has that Robert Downey Jr. quality of slyness, right? Where you you sort of think he always he always knows more than than he's letting on, and he was just pushing so hard in this that that 
I, sorry, I, I'm gone. I'm doing the thing, no. Mark. I'm doing the thing that you said not I think, to do, which is just you know. So I'm I'm su- suggesting here that maybe there's a fifth movie that there's like little bit of notes of here, which is let's call it the thirty percent Adam West. That there is <laughs> that there is a thirty percent Adam West movie here, which is a baroque parody where then they said, look, we can't do Harrison Ford. We can't do Han Solo. We just can't. Harrison Han Solo as a character is is not distinguishable from Harrison Ford. We're not going to be able to build this character up again to be the same thing that he was with Harrison Ford. And also what we think of him and how we remember him is is even better than he actually was in the movies, right? Where he he only did a few things. Uh, maybe Han Solo is he hit a particular note. He struck a particular chord in the culture. But but we're not going to be able to do it. And so we're going to do this sort of uh, Superman Returns-esque theatrical production where it's like people are playing the characters from the life of Han Solo. Almost like people almost like this is a history of Han's. I mean, it's exactly what it is. A history of Han Solo's life written after the fact by people who venerate him and who like hold him in very high esteem and only have really broad strokes about the people that he knew. And so it's like, oh, that's Lando Calrissian, the noted sexual hustler. And it's like, hello, I'm Billy D. Williams, right? Like, I can't even do it. I'm not going to try to do a Billy D. Williams impression. But it's like, how do you do Billy D. Williams? Right. Because Billy D. Williams is is so in his body that it's like if you do it, it has to be a mask. <laughs> you, I don't think you can necessarily like step into Billy D. Williams's shoes and just do him. And I, I mean, of course, I think actually probably a lot of women did that in the 80s and 70s. <laughs> but <laughs> and it was mutually enjoyable for all. But uh, but the point being, I'm just when, I'm agreeing with tr- that one a little truly bit. hopes. Well, Al Alden Eckenreich, Erkenreich, 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 Erkenreich. Uh, Alden, the Irish German, I'll call him, uh, Aaron Reich, um, although that's not how it's spelled, is seems like a parody Han Solo. He seems like he has this look on his face that, at least in the promotional materials and the way the movie is sold, that he doesn't know how he got here and he doesn't know what's happening around him. <laughs> he has no self-possession. And, and, and he's like along for the ride. And he's faking it until he makes it. And I, th- I would I would say maybe that's the, the way I would characterize the fifth movie is uh, although that also matches up with the first movie, which is this is a movie that fakes it until it makes it and never quite makes it. Uh, and, and that's kind of not all bad because it partially it's about how the history of the world is about people who tr- who are trying. But it's right, like, there's also I mean it had sort of a troubled production history. The original well, yeah. directors were were fired off of it, and Ron Howard, who is who is notable for being an excellent director of children, right? Like he's an actor's director of children, and there are like uh, of adults as well. But like in the, just look at the kids in a in a Ron Howard movie. Like one of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite moments of act of film acting ever is in Apollo 13 when, um, Tom Hanks's son, uh, who had been scared to see his father go up because he knew that other, other, uh, astronauts had died. And Tom Hanks explained that, no, you know, those, there, there was a faulty door on their spaceship and it, you know, and it, that's why, that's why it failed. And that's why tragedy And the, and then when it's clear that Apollo 13 is, uh, is doomed and like his dad is in danger, the kid looks up at a grown up and like says just wide eyed with the, this incredible openness was it the door 
And like, it's my, it's one of my favorite, it's uh, like, it's stuck with me decade, a decade or more later. Like it's one of my favorite movies. And like, I, you can, I think you can see that in, in a lot of, in a lot of Ron Howard films that, that the, the dealing with the young people is really done well. And so like, you know, the, this, uh, young actor uh, was like I think twenty five or something like that when when he was uh, cast as this and when they started um, started making this movie. What is, what is he now? Thirty two. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think he's almost thirty. I think he was born in in eighty nine. Um, I actually looked. I tried to like clock the ages of Harrison Ford in in A New Hope, uh, and you know, and Alden, uh, Ehrenreich, Ehrenreich in the uh, in this in this movie. And yeah, so he's uh, he's I guess twenty nine now, right? And that like so so the 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 I don't know the thing. One of the things that was in the rumors and the on the internet, and we don't do this a lot because it was because uh, we're not this kind of podcast. But this was in the Hollywood Reporter and places like this that that like the solo's performance, the Han Solo performance, was not what everyone had hoped. And the idea of like Ron Howard could uh, get a better performance. Right mm-hmm. out of Alden Ehrenreich, and they they reportedly shot some like abs- reshot some absurd amount mm-hmm. um, of the film, like mo- like almost all of it, like four yeah. four four minutes out of five or something like that, and uh, you know to get this to to uh, presumably to clean up this this performance and that that. You know, that has to be there has to be something. So, so Pete, the way the reason I'm, I'm dwelling on this is that I feel like you, you have to imagine that what they they snatched this movie from the jaws of some sort of like toothed space octopus, you know, <laughs> that, like that we, we snatched like marginal victory from the from the jaws of of defeat and that like we have to imagine that it was much, much, much worse, I think. I have a different read on this, uh, uh, but starting from the same point which you did, Matt, which is that the original directors were fired from it and replaced with Ron Howard. Right. So this is not just any original directors. This is Lord and Miller of 22 Jump Street, 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, Lego movie fame. Yeah. Who I think were trying to make that 30 percent Adam West movie that Pete was describing. Yeah. The, 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 the performativity of it, the kind of that um, uh, knowing distance from the material, knowing that, uh, you know, it's all a little bit ridiculous and kind of impossible and doing a bit of a, a, a of a send up approach to it, um, which Disney did not like and then brought Ron Howard in to make something much more conventional and kind of jumbled in the other four types of movies. That's my take on the behind the scenes drama on it. Um, and I, 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 I'm just kind of endlessly fascinated. I think the rest of the Internet is as well, too, about what kind of movie Lord and Miller would have made. Had they been left to their own devices, maybe it wouldn't have been good, but I think it would have been, if nothing else, like a, more unconventional than the uh, attempt at conventionality that we got in this movie. Yeah, I want to buy it in a box set with the full Edgar Wright Ant-Man and the full David Cronenberg-esque Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> I want all of the, like, the, the superhero movies that venture too far afield to the extent that the studios had to rein them back in. Uh, and that ended up being like kind of disappointing to a lot of people for that reason. I want to see the, the original, the ultimate cuts of all of those movies, the genre cuts. Right. Uh, the body horror, Fantastic Four, the full on jokey joke, Ant-Man. And and this movie, I don't know if you guys also noticed this, but I was being informed constantly 
by the music, how it feel all the time in no uncertain terms. The music in this movie was, I would say, even to the point of being overbearing. I don't know. Uh, what, what did you guys think about the music and solo? I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the tasteful uses of John Williams's um, uh, music from the original movies. Um, also, the Han Solo theme, which I believe was introduced in Episode Seven, so a much more recent addition. There's also a really sweet love theme. Uh, that you hear uh, throughout the movie in particular when uh, Han and Kira are making out in Lando's closet of capes. <laughs> um, the music swells. It uh, really is evocative of that old-timey swashbuckling B-movie type of thing they're going for. So I didn't mind it. Uh, I enjoyed yeah. it quite a lot, actually. Yeah. I don't know if it... Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, did you did you notice that, that when the John Williams themes were quoted, there was always like... They were quoted like a double speed. There was one, you know, sort of Star Wars theme that uh, that was like da 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 da. Um, the the uh, it was like all, almost being done at double time in order to like, oh yeah, we have to do this, but this, you know, this is not. I don't know. This is not the main thematic material of the uh, of the score. Yeah. And to go and also to just thinking about the embellishment and the a- aspect of embellishment in this movie, Mark, when you're talking about this comedy version or the thir- when we're talking about the 30 percent Adam West version, does anybody think that this this gang, this rival gang of criminals who turn out to be a cell of the old republic, new republic, galactic rebellion that that they I mean, I mean their their hero where he welds a double bladed axe with like a mantis head riding a space motorcycle. I think the shredder is on their team. There's definitely a guy with a bucket on his head. Like it's just it's just uh, I don't know. It's it's this aspect of earnestness. You guys would talk about it as being irony, as being like halfway between earnest and ironic. Oh, but I whoa! Kinda... Who's your who's who's you guys? <laughs> I guess that would be mostly what it was Blinky and Shayna who are super into that idea that it was on a continuum. I yeah. think that that irony and, and earnestness exist on a continuum and that if you contribute one, you then subtract from the other. Whereas in this movie, there is some really hard clash that goes on between things that seem more ironic and things that seem more earnest and they are forced to coexist. Uh, you know, the, the marauders as, are played super straight, super uh, earnestly, just to be, make sure that we're on the same page here. Right. Yeah. But their outfits aren't. Like their outfits are ridiculous. Yeah, they it's, ride they're, on space motorcycles. Yeah, they're out like, of the they're out of the Mad Maxiverse for sure. Yeah, they're Mad Max characters who turn out to be National Geographic characters. <laughs> United, uh, yeah, United Colors of Benetton ad characters, yeah. right? I mean, I specifically mean it's like we went to this place where these people live undisturbed, and we took pictures of their native lifestyle on the space hyperfuel planet, right where they all live. I mean, I mean, again. Again, I know that that particular part of the movie is important, uh, but I have to think that the authenticity it reaches for didn't land in this movie for me. Uh, that that like, or at least it's at least it's layered. Maybe it's just that it just feels like such an Ouroboros. The idea that they build a space colony in order to populate it with people to lend an authenticity to the notion of being indigenous. Let, let me put it right? this way: is that it's so far removed. From the thermal detonator joke at the beginning of the movie. Yes, yes, yes. That's a good point. 
right? That is like so. That is like a very much Adam West, Lord and Miller kind of thing going on. There's like you don't have a thermal detonator. You just made a clicking sound with your mouth, which was just a delightful moment. And then <laughs> right. two hours later, we get this like, oh, the empire is so terrible, and we're gonna start a rebellion, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's basically like a no blood for oil situation where they're like the last refinery that hasn't been conquered by the imperialists. And they're basically like this imperial war against the people who uh, deal in fossil fuels needs to be stopped. And look at the lifestyle that gets trampled underfoot by these people with their fancy triangular spaceships. Right. It's it's uh, it's beautiful. It's got dignity. It's got power. Now, in that sense, I actually kind of like the idea that the rebellion is taking on something of a human aspect because the rebellion as the sort of abstraction of being like princess Leia's team, uh, I felt like didn't quite turn the gears for me as much as this idea of like, we're going to see the actual places where these rebels live. This is what they're basically doing is they're taking the thing that replaced the yub dub song at the end of return of the Jedi, which was like the CGI montage of all the planets that were celebrating when the empire was overthrown and they're winding it back and they're putting it ahead of it, right? They're putting it first because presumably they're going to remake a new hope at some point with new actors, right? That's, ooh, is that, that's ooh, where this is going. Take. I mean, I'm I assuming, take. I'm assuming, right. That they're going to remake new hope with new actors, unless the poor performance of solo relative to expectations throws them off this, but that we will have already met different cells of the rebellion, then they will not just be this group of people who are like hanging out and high-fiving each other on the cover of a college brochure. You know, they will each have their own specific identities and reasons, and and they will be rooted in different sorts of political dynamics vis-a-vis the occupiers, conquerors, right, uh, you know, imperialists. Uh, we did meet the little boy with the broomstick, and now we've met the the warrior woman, the uh, the Furiosa of the of the hyper fuel refinery, right? Uh, as as a different sort of aspect of rebellion, and we'll meet all the aspects. And then when somebody gathers, when Mon Mothma gathers them all together to have a big talk about how they have to take down the Death Star, you'll look around the room and you'll see people that you know. And it won't just be Billy D. Williams and that that sort of plasticky looking fake Asian guy that's kind of offensive. All right, Mark, did you ever find that guy <laughs> offensive? I like that guy. You like that guy. Cut okay, us good. some slack. Cut us some slack. No. Okay. okay so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this aspect of the sort of the broadening political landscape of yeah. both the rebellion and I guess the empire as well. Um, this is one of the parts of the movie that I enjoyed the most, or at least it's like you know got me thinking the most. Um, it uh, what's the best way to describe it? I think it like recontextualizes the some of the central conflicts uh, that we see in episodes four through six. Right. Because we just don't have a lot at all. We just go, oh, the Empire is evil. They're super genocide people because they blew up an entire planet um, uh, just to kind of prove a point. Um, And rewind that a little bit in something we see in Explored in Solo and to some extent Rogue One as well. Um, We see this conflict over natural resources, this like brutal exploitation of of labor, this uh, very colonialist type of subjugation of native peoples type of thing going on. Um, but you also see the empire's incompetence as well as a governing body. Um, we talk about this more a little bit in the uh, plug for overthinking memberships in the question of the week, uh, where I pitch um, a kind of a dark political comedy about how the empire is bad at stuff. Um, but in particular, the fact that like um, they don't have absolute control over rule of law to the point where these criminal gangs are not even just running rampant, but actually uh, in certain ways have imperial high level imperial uh, officials under their thumbs um, and uh, are very critical to the supply chain for the hyperfuel to them. Um, 
it makes the Star Wars universe richer for me. I like that the Empire is a little less competent in this because of the events of what we saw in Solo. Other people might disagree with me, but that's my take on uh, hashtag uh, Empire is incompetent. Yeah. You know what it's felt like to me is it felt – I feel like Han Solo – I talked a little bit about him being Dickensian, but really I kind I think that Han Solo's antecedent is like Rick from Casablanca. Who's like, ah, it's not my fight. It's not my fight. I had a, I love somebody once. I don't love anybody ever again. Right. And it's, it's like, I don't <laughs> yeah, get involved. Yeah. Right. And then he's like, and I got my buddy and he doesn't, he's, he, he, you know, I'm better for being friends with a guy like him, but let's not pretend like anyone cares what he has to say because of his race. Right. Like play, play, <laughs> yeah, play, play, play it against you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like the girl shows up and then it's like, oh, man, I've I'm in love with you. And because I'm in love with you, I feel a connection to the world and my connection to be my love for you, which is related to like wanting to be in a family relationship with you, which was related to sort of like the book of Timothy and kind of ideas of microcosm and macrocosm and the organization of society. You know, like I as the male, as the man, I'm the head of the family. I should therefore also take my place as the head of the nation. Right. And I should go fight in the army. And and like this whole idea that all of the little ducks are going to line up right that like uh that so because here's the thing here's the other side of what you're saying is that on on one hand the uh i've been listening to a lot of the revolutions podcast lately and i think the way that mike duncan uh mike duncan draws distinction between different sorts of revolutionary forces uh and and he describes them as uh political question the political question and the social question and the political question is what sort of constitution and government is going to rule over us and the social question is like what are we doing about poverty and about social problems and the distribution of resources and how people live and and work and uh and that one of the common tropes in revolutions is that people who have a problem with the social question and the political question join forces and they win. And then the social question, people don't get what they want and then it collapses. Right. And it's that like, because what I'm suggesting here is that if we start with this idea that there's all these people. So in the, in the, in the original trilogy, the problem is that the empire is not free. It is a tyranny. That is the problem. Yeah. It is. It does not respect the rule of law. It does not respect voting. It does not respect independence or freedom or rights. Uh, it is not a government of the people, and that makes it bad. And it needs to be replaced by a government of the people. Political question. What we're seeing now is the empire is bad because it is oppressive, because it has because the people who are in charge of the empire have economic relationships with other groups of people. And they are subjugated under them and that the authority that those people wield in the context of being the empire is an extension of the economic authority. It's a political extension of the economic authority that they will by virtue of being, you know, the people who run the races of the camel dog kangaroo things. Right. Or like the people who uh, are doing the battle bots. Right. And like all all the people who aren't running Disney theme parks but are trying to entertain people are oppressing the universe. No, sorry. I don't want to get down that road again. But just the idea that like if you if the problem if the rebellion is made up of people who are economically disadvantaged and socially disadvantaged by the existence of the empire. And and uh, and then they all join together and form the rebellion. The question is, then, is the solution politically for them a new republic? Right. Like, why do they make why would they put Princess Leia in charge? Why would an Organa be in charge of that? Why would Mon Mothma be in charge of that? Why would those people want to make Han Solo a general? 
Right. And I guess this movie sort of addresses it in the sense that they kind of invite him to tag along and he says no, acknowledging the fact that he's not one of them and he's not going to be fighting for the reasons that they fight and they're different. And if they do join up, it's going to have to be on some sort of mutually agreeable terms. But from where I'm sitting right now, I I find it I don't think that the movies have to address this question, but it's an interesting question that uh, if we're changing the Star Wars problem. We're assuming that we're going to maintain the same Star Wars solution. Although the last thread I did address this, even as I say it. So, Matt, I hear you trying to get in uh, and and say something. No, no, no. Finish your finish your thought. Absolutely. Which I said, like. It starts making the last Jedi makes a lot of sense in the context of this, because the last Jedi does raise the idea that the old aristocratic kind of uh, patron relationship of the force sensitive and the wealthy to the downtrodden and the uh, and the weak uh, and the vulnerable is that like, oh, we who have the power and the resources, we protect them, that that relationship is is broken. And that the last Jedi is saying, look, the order of the Jedi didn't work. Their obsession with being entirely light side didn't work uh, because they didn't take into account viewpoints that weren't their own. There were a whole bunch of conflicts and fights over things that didn't make the universe better. We need to find a new way. And what's posited is the new way is the little kid picking up the the stick with his hand and his force powers. And it's like, oh, the rebellion is going to be a bottom up rebellion. It's not going to be a top down uh, you know, negotiation, <laughs> aggressive yeah. negotiation with lightsabers. Yeah. The other uh, non-force aspect of that ending of The Last Jedi is that uh, the resistance puts out the call to its allies and no one yeah. answers. Right, right, right. And so the question then is, uh, uh, well, who what 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 does it look like if if the good guys win? What does it look like is kind of my question. Uh, right. Is that is that uh, what are they fighting for? I know what they're fighting against, but what are they fighting for is the question. Mm. Uh, and I'm interested in seeing if Star Wars is going to put on its its big big girl pants and big boy pants and uh, and and answer a question like that and 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 give us uh, give us an idea of you know f- do we care about freedom in this context? Freedom for the galaxy, peace, right? Are these useful or meaningful things in the thing that we're talking about? Because there are conflicts. Uh, in the idea, you know, like on one hand, this is this is a planet that probably wants to run a wholesale uh, hyper fuel monopoly of some sort of its own. Right. Like like are you are you comfortable with the marauders being a petro state with nuclear weapons? <laughs> <laughs> it's all fine and dandy if they're riding space motorcycles and trying to counter steal trains. But are you OK with those people sitting there with their own Death Star, which they will use on you if you don't do what they want? <laughs> right. Like that's another question. It's very comfortable as long as they are plucky underdogs. But how will this all fit together into a republic? Right. If you yeah, think exactly, a republic is even the answer. Exactly. After after the dictatorship of the of the National Geographic proletariat, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what 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 will become when Star Wars gets Star Woke? Uh, I'm not totally sure. <laughs> But uh, I, I just know it involves Palpatine going down to shafts. That's right. <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> I'm talking about power. Unbelievable immense power. <laughs> <laughs> then, we, then we can dig it. Uh, and whatever whatever comes of the of of new woke Star Wars, new anti aristocratic Star Wars, which seems to be not in the DNA of the franchise. But, you know, whatever. Give it a you know, give it a try. That's that's just super. Um 
whatever comes of that, we will be here to cover it on Overthinking It. We'll be back next week. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna return circle back to Deadpool. So you have an extra extra week to watch uh, watch yourself some Deadpool too, and uh, and more continuing throughout the summer. We will return uh, between episodes. Though you can check us out on OverthinkingIt.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.